Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean for Liberal Arts for Southern New Hampshire University's online history programs. Starting with this episode, and then continuing in occasional episodes going forward, I'm going to broaden the scope of our conversations a bit to look at different fields within what academics like to call liberal arts. For our purposes, liberal arts includes history, but also different fields like communications, graphic design, graphic arts, philosophy, literature, English. And last year, I talked to a bunch of interesting people affiliated with those fields, and I'm going to share the recordings of those conversations here. I looked for people outside of academics who could talk about the importance of the liberal arts in the business world. I looked for entrepreneurs, CEOs, and business owners. The resulting conversations range a bit across different topics, but I tried to find answers to some core questions that I think apply across the liberal arts that matter to students in liberal arts programs and to alumni who hold liberal arts degrees. These questions focus on uh, why are students with liberal arts degrees valuable to employers? What can students in liberal arts programs do to make themselves more valuable or marketable to employers? And finally, why do the liberal arts matter to you and to our modern culture? In this first installment, I am talking to Jennifer Moxley, a media consultant, producer, videographer, and the owner of Sunshine Media Network, which is based in Charlotte, North Carolina. We discuss the importance of a liberal arts education in her professional career as a journalist and as a communicator. What is your name and what do you do? I'm Jennifer Moxley, and I'm the founder and owner of Sunshine Media Network. Um, I call myself a story maker. So I work to tell clients, entrepreneurs, professional athletes, corporations story through whatever medium best fits their need at the time or for the scenario. Um, I am based in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I work all over the country, um, but I really concentrate on the East Coast, particularly the Southeast. That's great, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about your kind of day-to-day operations. But before we get to that, can you tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background? Sure. So I went to a small private liberal arts school in North Carolina, Pfeiffer University. And um, I had my first child in high school, my senior year of high school. So I was starting college with um, a lot of um, responsibility. (laughs) I was working full time, had my son and started full time course load after I graduated high school. Um, A small college was convenient for me because I was able to have personal relationships with my professors. And I didn't know a lot about college. I was the first person in my family to go to um, university. And I navigated that whole process by myself. So I, I didn't really know what to look for, how to compare them, what would fit me best. I didn't even know that a college would accept me because I had a baby in high school and I thought that was kind of a, a mark against you. <laughs> I didn't know. Mm-hmm. So um, <clears throat> when I started Pfeiffer, I began as an elementary education major because I I just didn't have any other career path ahead of me other than teacher. And very early on, I realized that that was going to be a discipline that maybe not something I wanted to spend my career doing. And since I already had my son, I decided to change to communications because I was under the impression it would be easy. <laughs> I truly, I, this is the truth. I knew that a lot of football players on TV were communications majors. And I thought, well, if they can do it, surely I can do it. And it's probably easy, um, probably not even a real major. And so I'm not going to say that's true, but I was able to graduate college in three and a half years. Mm-hmm. And I had my second son my senior year of college. So by the time I graduated in December of my senior year, I had two kids and started my first job at a local newspaper. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of work doing that with while also raising kids. I can only imagine that would be very, very tiring. <laughs> it is. It is. So for me, and I'm sure a lot of people, college was um, something I had to do for a means to an end. It, it wasn't something I dedicated a lot of energy and um, brain power to because I just didn't have it. So for me, I just needed that piece of paper to 
be positioned in the working arena and be competitive. So now looking back, I'm able to see what I could have used in college to help my journalism and communications career. And what do you think that that would have been? What do you think you would have done differently? I absolutely would have read more. <laughs> I would have read those <laughs> assignments. So it's interesting because in some ways, hustling through college while working full time and having a child on my own was good experience for the communication, journalism, entrepreneurial world, because it is a lot of juggling, a lot of hustling, a lot of doing what you have to do to get by, but doing a really good job at the things that you need to do a good job at. So I find myself realizing that even now as a business owner, I might do my taxes seriously one week, but then for a month, I don't really focus on them. And then a week later, I focus on them. And then when taxes are due, I focus on them. And so it's, as an entrepreneur, it's a constant juggling of a lot of the responsibilities. Um, I do wish I read more in college. I Actually, that I really wish I could take my college courses now, now that I know what I don't know, <laughs> now that mm -hmm. I appreciate it. Um, I'm still paying for college, so it'd be nice. <laughs> it'd be nice to take a couple of those, you know, literature courses again and French again. I took seven years of French through high school and college, and I still can't speak any of it because I just kind of faked my way through it and passed the test and crammed and just did just enough. So Mm -hmm. But but what I did gain um, in the liberal arts education was exposure. And that, I think, was one of the most valuable parts of my college experience was the exposure. It was the first time I'd taken religion classes. It was the first time I had really dug into science classes. Even my um, uh, elective classes, weightlifting and running, you know, the things that you take just to pass, even those things gave me some experience that I had not had in high school or even in my personal life. So that was incredibly valuable. And then my classmates absolutely were pivotal to shaping me as an adult. And that liberal arts education really makes a hodgepodge of curriculums, backgrounds, experiences, career goals. And all of those folks really influenced me greatly because I was still in a small town close to home. But I was able to have an international experience with people from all over the world and all over the country on our small campus of a thousand students. And that is priceless. Yeah, that's important for a lot of reasons. It could be networking for future jobs, but it's also just being exposed to different ideas, different personalities, which is the type of stuff that you need to know once you get out into the workforce, you need to be able to get along with diverse people that you may never, never encountered before. And so there's value, even if it doesn't lead to networking that gets you a job or something, there's still value in getting to know all those different viewpoints and perspectives and nationalities and different, um, there's just so much diversity that can help you later on in much more indirect ways than we might even think about it. And college is a wonderful place to test your cultural sensitivity. We are young, we're still learning. And when we bond with a friend from a different background, we're able to have those really raw and naked conversations about cultural sensitivity and insensitivity. Um, you know, inert um, things that you grew up with that were racist, um, implicit biases, we're able to explore those kinds of things. And I'm really grateful for being able to have exposure to not just different types of people, but different types of thinking in a really intimate kind of way. And even if those folks um, weren't friends of mine or weren't long life friends, they were still influential in shaping how I saw things. And it's particularly vital in the communication industry. If someone is going to communicate through graphic design, through video editing, through videography, through the written word, it's imperative that we try to represent as many people in our communities that we're able to through the lens that we have given to us. And being culturally sensitive is 
is just one of those things that you don't take a class on sometimes, but you absolutely have to be aware of the value and the importance of it, particularly that communications expert. Yeah, and that's a hugely important part of the liberal arts education is that understanding of diverse viewpoints and all of that. And you're right, there's not really a class you can take on that. It's just something that you kind of have to pick up along the way. It's one of those things that's very hard to teach because it's we think about, you know, that stuff is missing from classes. And so we, a lot of times we as higher ed administrators, we might think, well, we need to we do need to put that into classes. But sometimes that stuff is just is hard to teach. And how do you engineer a situation where people embrace it without feeling like it's being forced down their throats or something, which might get them defensive or something. It's hard. It's really hard to figure out how, how can you train people to do that kind of thing? Isn't that the million dollar question beyond college (laughs) and in the workplace? (laughs) You know, if we could create a space uh, where people are vulnerable and come to the table and say, I don't know anything, um, that is when we're able to have dialogues that really shape and influence and share opinions. And college can be a wonderful place for that because in a lot of ways we do kind of come to the table of a campus, of an online situation in a classroom and say, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm here to learn. And after college, as an adult, I have to push myself into those situations. I have to seek those opportunities. And it's not as easy as it is when you're in that, you know, college community environment. And we certainly don't get that in high school, um, for the most part. High schools are still very structured to pass the test and get the, the diploma and then move on. So college is that experimental conversation, relationship building kind of get away from your parents for the first time. You get away from your hometown and you're able to be more free thinking. And the hope is that um, someone takes that opportunity and really dives into scary places and uncomfortable places. Right. And so when you were in college, you mentioned that you were doing communication. And when you, you, um, you, you mentioned briefly that when you got out of college, you went into journalism. While you were in college pursuing the communications degree, were you focused on journalism as the most likely job you were going to look for? Or were you looking for more of, was it kind of like a print communication focus, oral, oral communication? What were, your, um, what were you specializing in when you were doing the degree? As much as I love my university, I, 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 didn't, I didn't do a good job there. <laughs> I really didn't. I, I, I chose communications because it was easy. It was the first year of the degree. So I was one of the early adopters of the major. And I had a wonderful mentor. He still is in touch with me to this day. He was incredibly knowledgeable about mass communications and the study of, of the topic. I was not interested in any of that. I wanted to graduate and get a job and start supporting myself and my son. So I, I really didn't take advantage of the opportunity that, that college could have provided. But I will say that, um, oh gosh, oh, hold on one second. What did you just ask? I just, I just lost my thought because I was trying to be careful because I know he's going to listen to this. <laughs> hold on. Well, I, I was um, asking what you're, what you were focusing on. Oh, my on goals. So yeah. when I was in, when I was in fifth grade, I had vocabulary words assigned to me every week. And I took those vocabulary words and wrote them in a not necessarily the news newscast. I loved that show. It was on HBO at the time. And I I just loved it. It was, you know, it was tongue in cheek news. And for some reason in fifth grade, I decided that I needed to take my vocabulary words and write a news script. And my, my teacher, I found her on Facebook. We're still friends today. She loved it. So fast forward to college, when I have an opportunity to work for the school newspaper, I quit three times because I just could not find the energy or the aptitude to juggle that responsibility. And I remember thinking to myself, I really don't care what the lacrosse team is doing this year. I just don't (laughs) care. So I never made it on the school paper. And when I was looking towards graduation, um, it was around November before I graduated in December, an opportunity came to me through my college advisor to apply for a job at the local newspaper. It was a tri-weekly paper and I would be a reporter there. Well, 
because I had moved around so much as a child, I, I went to 15 different uh, elementary schools before I graduated. Uh, I never had a firm grasp of the written word. It's very hard for me to tell you what a pronoun is from a noun, from a verb, from an adjective. Those kinds of basic skills were lost on me because a school learned it in second grade, but then I got there in third grade or a school learned it in fifth grade and I left in fourth grade. So I really struggled with the concept of English as grammar. But I went to the interview because I needed a job and I even told the editor, I'm not a strong writer and got the job anyway, because who knew? (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's very hard to find reporters at local papers. So what I found was curiosity was the skill you needed. Empathy was the second skill that you needed. You have editors to fix your written word. You know, if you can communicate, if you can listen, if you can be present when someone is sharing their story with you and pay attention to the details, that makes you a good reporter. If you can take the responsibility of that story, of your words, of that message, and you take it to heart, that's what makes you a good reporter. So all the other stuff kind of came with experience, you know, editors telling me, stop doing this, stop writing that, you use too many commas. (laughs) (laughs) But I'll tell you, I really found my home in TV. I worked for two newspapers and um, received a wonderful foundation for journalism from the people who mentored me at those newspapers. But when I transitioned into TV, local news writing, that's where the rubber hit the road because TV writing is very conversational. There isn't a lot of detail. There aren't very big words. I remember one time I tried to use the word cacophony in a TV story and the producer said, no way, no one knows what that means. (laughs) (laughs) So TV writing is really where I found my groove because it fits with my weakness of, of the written word, but my strength of storytelling yeah, and that makes uh, I, I can certainly see how that plays out. I mean, writing for a newspaper or basically any form of written writing is going to be a lot more technical because oral is much more conversational. Like right, right, right now, you and I are having a much more informal conversation than if we were to, and this is for an audio medium, if we were to be doing this interview for a written medium, then we'd be having a much more formal conversation. And of course, when I go to transcribe, when I would to transcribe it and all that, I'd be cutting out probably a whole lot of digressions mm-hmm. and all of that. And so I can certainly see that, I mean, different different forms of storytelling are very different and, and can play to different strengths. And so, yeah, someone who's may not be technically a great writer can still be an excellent storyteller. And I actually was just reading, um, I read a lot of sci-fi and so I'm reading uh, reviews of some sci-fi books and there's a lot of times where they talk about how the, it's not a very technically a good writer, but it's an excellent storyteller. And mm-hmm. on one point you're thinking, this is in a book. How can someone not, how can someone be, what is basically being said as being a bad writer, but also be a good storyteller. That's a very, it's kind of strange to kind of appreciate that dynamic, but I, but I fully understand that there is that dynamic. And also one of my most favorite quotes, if I was a better writer, I would have written a shorter book. Sometimes (laughs) folks who are great at the written word are terrible at condensing that and and being succinct about it and keeping people's attentions. Um, On the flip side, I'm very detail oriented. And so it was painful to have to tell eight hours of court testimony in a minute and 15 seconds. And Mm -hmm. when I was a print reporter, it was wonderful to have all the space in the paper and the jump page to recap my eight hours of court testimony that I was able to to um, report on. So, it, you know, there were pluses and minuses of both. And going back to that liberal education, it's the experimenting that we are comfortable with. We're comfortable going into different classes and we're comfortable learning different things. And we get very familiar with the um, newness of things. And as someone in the media that is 
fulfilling and I thrive on it. And I, I now, if, if I find something I don't understand, I'll resource, research it like a, uh, as a reporter would, even though it has no purpose in my life other than I just want to know more about <laughs> it so that I can then tell other people about it. Hey, did you know there's only seven items we're able to recycle nowadays? Yeah, because this happened and that happened and nope, you can't recycle that. And so I'll spend so much time just researching these kinds of really unimportant things because it's that skill that I've developed over the years just through through my jobs. Yeah, the ability to identify topics of interest or even topics that may not be interesting to other people, but you you as a storyteller can probably make that topic more interesting than it might otherwise seem because you are such a good storyteller. And if you know, and if you're able to conduct all the necessary research to build up a, a stockpile of information about it, the presentation of the information in some ways is just as important as the actual content of the information that you're sharing. One of the best things I ever learned on my own was something called theory of mind. And I might even be recapping it incorrectly, but this is how I own it. (laughs) (laughs) Theory of mind is being able to think about what the viewer's next question is. What are they wondering? And so um, when I'm interviewing someone and they're telling me their story or they're sharing information, I'm always trying to think about what is the listener's next logical question? Where are they going to with that information? Not me personally. So many interviewers get stuck in the me personally, my mindset, but try to think about the vast audience listening. What are they curious about that was either just mentioned or has not been mentioned? And so that part is always, I always think about, okay, if I'm on LinkedIn, what does this audience want to know right now from this information? What's their next question? I, I don't, and then if I transition to Twitter, what would this audience's next question be? Um, so it, it's been it's been a, a a very fascinating evolution to see how I've I've been able to identify the things I love to do, the things I'm not so good at, the things I want to do more of, and make that into a career. But the ultimate goal is how do you make those things turn into money? <laughs> yeah. That's at the end of the day. <laughs> How do I take this crazy ability to find information on anybody and turn that into money so it can pay the bills? <laughs> yeah, and your discussion of theory of mind, I mean, that's that is constantly going through my I didn't I never thought of the term theory of mind, but that's going through my head constantly, even when I'm doing these podcasts, is because I'm I'm like you said, I'm trying to kind of figure out what do listeners want to know. And so I'm constantly trying to come up with, okay, what what should I ask that someone else is going to be interested? I mean, I mean, because the things that I'm interested in could be, could be interesting to anybody else, but it's hard to kind of predict. And I have absolutely no formal training in this at all. I started doing this kind of on a whim almost a couple of years ago. Um, and so I have no idea if I'm doing it well or not, but <laughs> it is something that's constantly going through my head is how do I make this interesting for people that are listening in? Because, you know, two talking heads, well, audio talking heads, whatever the equivalent mm-hmm. would be, talking for a half hour or so. How can we make that interesting to people that are listening? Um, and hopefully it works. <laughs> hopefully, mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes it doesn't, but hopefully it does. <laughs> the devil's in the details. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so you were t- we, uh, you left off by talking about how you take these skills that you learned and turned it into money. And so let's talk a little bit about the development of your career. You mentioned that you were a journalist in print for a while, then you became a television journalist, and now you've opened up your own company. So what? How did that happen? And what is your new? What does your life look like as the owner of this company? Well, it, I think it is absolutely true that um, necessity is the mother of invention. And so I got to a point in local news where younger and less paid people were taking jobs that would be next for me in line um, for promotions. And it was very difficult for me to leave because I loved my newsroom family. I loved where I was working. I was one of the first reporters ever hired there. It was a brand new network in Charlotte. And I really had a personal connection to it. Um, And I, I find that sometimes my heart drives business decisions way more than they should. Um, And the more 
more I surround myself with other women entrepreneurs and other businesswomen, the more I see that that might be a trait common for women who haven't quite Ooh. learned how to divide, you know, what feels good and, and what feels like we should do with what we should do for the bottom line. So that's something I still work on. Um, but I saw that I didn't have much room for growth financially. And uh, at the time, um, I had been married and divorced. I, my, my boys were maybe nine and 13 years old. And it was just time for me to look for something else. Um, I, I didn't know what. And so I happened to stumble upon someone that I had run into 10 years before. I grabbed his business card. He'd still been in in, he'd still been doing what he was doing. And I thought, well, heck, let's just talk to this guy and see what his opportunity is. And I think creativity is also a skill that we should nurture in anyone thinking outside the box and constantly looking for ways to repurpose and repackage something because creativity is going to help you survive. So when he and I met, I, I decided to quit my job and jump. And so I did. And I remember someone I worked with said, oh, I wish I could take a risk like you. I wish I could do what you're doing. And I looked at him and said, I have no safety net right now. <laughs> I don't have anyone helping me. I don't get child support. I don't get alimony. I won't have health insurance. I barely know the guy that I'm going to partner up with here. I can't take this risk. But even more so, I couldn't not take the risk. So it was absolutely a, a critical time in my life, a crossroads in my life that I made a very risky decision, but knew I just had to go with 100% force in that direction. So he and I started working together in January of 2012 and hustled. I was in a lot of very, very unfamiliar territory. I was doing live television production. My very first job was for The Ellen Show. And I was so inexperienced in this space that, you know, I'm driving to West Virginia for the job. Her, her RV was surprising this woman with a surprise engagement. And so I'm leaving Charlotte and I'm driving in the satellite truck and headed to West Virginia. And I look out the window and realize there's snow on the ground and I don't even have a jacket. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like this unprepared for, for my life. So that was my first job was pulling cable and helping Ellen DeGeneres pull off a surprise engagement in the middle of West Virginia in the snow at night. It was 9 p.m. our time and 5 p.m. her time when they taped the show. From there, it just grew quickly. And one thing that I take away from that time, that experience is once you're in the room and once your name is in the conversation, people don't ask for your resume and people don't ask for your credentials. You kind of snowball fast once you have that first job. And mm -hmm. the notion of if you build it, they will come has really proven true also. Once I opened up my life to working in national news production and TV show production, uh, you know, I had equipment and we had a satellite truck and, and we took that money and we bought more stuff and we took that money and we bought more stuff. No one ever said, Hey, are you qualified to run the camera for the New York giants on the sidelines? No one really said that. Now I got a lot of weird looks. I'm not gonna, I'm a, I'm a little <laughs> woman. I'm not going to lie. I did get a lot of weird looks and I did have to work really hard to prove that I belonged there. But to get there, there was not as much because I'd already started that escalation. And so on paper, it's challenging to prove yourself. But as long as you can prove yourself in person, and as long as you have the work to back it up, you have a fighting chance. And I'm not going to discredit privilege you know, I do have white privilege. I do fight against sexism still because I am a woman in video production against a lot of men in the room. Um, but I say all that to say, pull the weeds out of the garden and the flowers do grow. Because if I hadn't just taken that first jump to get that first job, it wouldn't have escalated and continued to show up. So you're not going to convince the people that you can't convince, but there are a lot of people out there who will give you a shot and who will bring you back once you do a good job. 
Yeah. And so when you're talking about this new job that you're doing, was this like a, a freelancing consulting type relationship or because I'm guessing you were not a full time employer of, say, the Ellen show. Were you doing this as kind of like a contracted type position? Yeah. So TV works in freelance capacity. I've worked for every national news network as a freelancer, and um, that's just how they operate for the most part. And it's it's a very lucrative life to be your own boss and choose what jobs you do and what jobs you don't do. Although when they call, you should definitely say yes, because if you say no, they don't usually call back again. But right. yeah, we all work as contractors, 1099 freelancers, and and then you're able to work for more than one organization. So you might work for CNN on Monday and you could work for Fox News on Tuesday because they don't, you know, they just want someone who has the ability and, and has the skill set and you, oh, you worked for CNN. Well, then you can work for us. Um, and so the great thing about that is that everyone can be their own boss, but then that mm -hmm. opens up the conversation of how do you run your own company? <laughs> because I did not learn that. So Picking up the skills of running a business is critical. Accounting, taxes, insurance, licenses, just time management. I do so many bids. I bid on so many jobs. The graphic design layout of the bid, that is part of your presentation. And I think back to all the times I did presentations in college and I didn't take it seriously. I just thought, well, let me impress this professor and then impress this professor. And then that's all that I need to do is to get a grade. But really, I should have been thinking, how can I convince this classroom of people to pay me $10,000 for this project? That's really the that's really what we should be learning. How do I convince you to part ways with your money and trust me? Because that is what I spend a great amount of time doing. And in the past three years, I shifted away from working with anybody else and I'm completely on my own. And at Sunshine Media Network, I do a lot of landing the job. I go in front of the company. I go you know, in front of the entrepreneurs. I, I am constantly soliciting people with ideas, whether they want them or not. I think they're a good idea. And I, hey, you could do this if you've thought about this. And I'm always out there looking for work because when I get a project, that means I'm putting other entrepreneurs to work, other creatives, someone who is a graphic designer, who is a stay-at-home dad, who I've never met in person, you know, someone who's a videographer, who's able to work for six or seven other different companies. I can bring her or him in to shoot a job for me. Um, so my goal is always to hire as many other skilled entrepreneurs in this industry as I possibly can, because I'm really good at pitching and landing the client and overseeing the project, communicating with the budget, the communications, the corporations, and the crew and the boots on the ground, because I've done both. I'm able to kind of be that translator between both of them. Yeah, and I think that's a good point that one of the skills that liberal arts students, really all students probably need to learn this too, is the ability to be persuasive and to sell themselves. I mean, we, we talk all the time in, you know, about when you get a job, you're gonna have to sell yourself to the employer and all that. But it's even more than that. It's just like you said, the idea that you got to convince somebody to part ways with their money <laughs> and mm -hmm. give the money to you. That's a good way to put it. Even in, you know, my, my field of history, um, we historians, you know, in order to fund travel overseas or wherever, when they're going to go find collections or sources or primary sources or whatever they're doing, there's a lot of grant applications and scholarship applications and um, travel funds. There's there's a lot of persuasiveness. You have, you have to basically convince people that your work is worthy and that you deserve them. You deserve to have them give you money in order to pursue that work. And that's uh, that. While a lot of college courses may include usually they phrase it as like persuasive essay or something. It doesn't, I don't think it always kind of gets across what students will be actually persuading people to do in the future, because mm -hmm. persuading someone to listen to an academic argument is one thing. Persuading someone to give you money is a totally different thing. And that's something that I think is, is something that probably is not come, doesn't always come across through well in an academic setting. 
Agreed. And the most difficult assignment as a reporter you will ever get is the day that you're hired and you have to write your introductory article. Jennifer Moxley comes to us from Pfeiffer University. That is the hardest article to write because you're <laughs> writing about yourself. Mm-hmm. And and people hire me to help them tell their story. I get paid to help people write acceptance speeches and TED Talks and tell their story. I'm That is my job, telling other people's stories because they are unable to do that. So when we're persuading someone that toll roads are unethical or ethical, that's one thing. But when you're persuading someone to pay you $50,000 for six months of work because you're capable, you're talented, and you're competent, that is a very, very different mindset. And again, as I look to the people I hire, I find stark differences between the way men approach that conversation and the way women approach that conversation. And I constantly work my with myself and with my, my female colleagues on how can we be confident in our skills. Most of the time, women want to know how to do it before they say they can, where men will say, yeah, I can do that and figure it out. And my business <laughs> partner did that. He pushed me to so many new heights because he was like, we can figure it out. And I'm like, we've never done this before. But if you think about it, when you're applying for a job, very rarely do you ever have all the skills they are asking for. You don't know their internal email system and their internal messaging system. And you don't know how their data entry works and you don't know codes that they use. But when you're, when you're an entrepreneur, every job is posing new challenges. We have to get comfortable with, okay, I've never done this before. And either I have no idea what I'm doing or I've never done this before, but I know I can call on the resources to help me figure it out. Um, without messing up the job. And that's very difficult. And, you know, I think I didn't do this in college. I was a a little bit of a loner because I did work full time and, and had my son. But I think something that we can gain from an academic setting is learning how to build a support network. And this support network isn't necessarily your spouse, and it might not be your parents, and it might not be your siblings, because they aren't always the people who are going to tell you to go get it. So finding that support network of people who are just as ambitious as you are, so you don't have to worry about competition. They're just as scared as you are. So you know that you're on equal playing field and they can also remind you of the things you remind them of. Um, I have several different mastermind groups that have helped me through negotiations that have helped me through going over rough drafts of bids so I can see, do you see what I'm trying to communicate? Um, And that support network, you know, a lot of people don't talk about it after you are out on your own in the real world, but it's been really pivotal being an entrepreneur to have that and vet those people and get rid of the people who do not fit the mold. Yeah. And you raise an interesting point about the gender dynamics at play um, because yeah, I can certainly understand the idea that men may be a bit more, you know, blustery and just, you know, wing it <laughs> until it works. And, but I have seen also the, 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 the dynamic you were describing for women where there's either, and again, it's, if it's a society imposed thing or self-imposed, but there is a sense that of, we can't wing it. We need to know what we're doing before this, this, this happens, which is going to lead to different results especially when we're talking about persuasiveness and all of that, because someone who can kind of bluster and say, oh yeah, no problem, that the, that may be an easier sell than someone who's saying, well, I'd have to figure this out, I'd have to figure this out. And so I think um, what you're talking about really lends itself to the idea of building a diverse network, men, women, different, um, different perspectives. Um, that's the stuff that's going to help everybody kind of achieve some achieve their goals in a better way because they're going to be hearing about what works for some people doesn't work for other people how you can shift your own perspective to embrace ideas that other people are putting out there um and you know putting you know go back to the simple argument about making yourself more blustery <laughs> make it so that you 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 can project yourself as as uh, with with the the confidence and all that to succeed and all of that so i i think that's a good point that building up a diverse um, 
network of people that you can talk to is an essential skill for success in almost any field. Yeah, diversity above all will help with any <laughs> any kind of improvement by by all means. You know, and I I do look back to how how did school, how did it create these good girl syndromes where we're just going for the A, we're going to work, work, work until we get that A, but are we actually doing anything outside of our comfort zone or are we just following the rules? You know, um, so it's, I, I struggle with this myself as a business person and as a creative and as an entrepreneur, and I'm always looking for ways to learn, do better, be better. I mentor younger women. Um, a lot of the people in my network are women and minorities. And that's intentional because no one told me, you can be a professional videographer. You can own a TV studio. You can own a satellite truck. You can own your own company. Those weren't the kinds of things I was told. I was told, well, you can be a teacher. <laughs> You'd be a good teacher. Yeah. And not to say that that's not a wonderful career, but there are so many other vocations out there available to women. And frankly, I love having women on my team because they are so detail-oriented and in tune with what's going on on a job. You know, men have a role and they are wonderful contributors, but I see so many benefits to having the diversity of age and gender and race and cultural background, because we're all looking at it from different lenses and bringing something different to the table. Um, and too many industries are not inclusive. And especially when you look at some newsrooms, um, I, I tell people frequently, I was, I was, most of the time, I was one of the only people in the newsroom who had ever lived in public housing because most people in newsrooms have college degrees. Well, what does it take to go to college? It takes some level of income. And, and then what does that mean? And so when you don't have that experience, background, influencing communications and media, then we're getting our information from a very small funnel. Yeah, and all that takes us back to our discussion earlier where we were talking about the importance of diversity and the importance of having d different viewpoints and all of that. And um, and so, yeah, you're contributing new viewpoints based on your background, like you're saying, that other people in that environment probably never came into contact with, unless maybe they were part of a story or something. But mm -hmm. someone who's actually lived in that experience and has regular contact with those people, you may well have been the first. And so you're, you're contributing... Uh, we, your, your story is contributing to the development of all the people around you. And that's great. What I love about the communications business, the media business, the creative space is that there is a place for every single person. I think that's the most beautiful thing about it. There's a place for every single voice in this industry. It doesn't matter what your background, what your skill set, how old you are, how young you are, it, your income level. We need all of these um, fabrics to make the quilt of storytelling, videography, movies, literature, graphic design. It, it really doesn't matter. We just have to have that full spectrum of backgrounds and people and thoughts. And I think that's probably the most appealing part of what I do is that if I get a project with a client, I'm able to look for who is going to make this different and who's going to bring something to it. And, um, and it's really fulfilling as someone who's been doing this for so long, for more than 20 years, to take a young person who doesn't think that they have a place there and build them up to say, not only do you have a place, you're very valuable, and let me communicate what your worth is compared to other people in this industry. So you can start thinking about about what you should charge, how much, you know, your hourly rate is and what kind of career you can make this. I think, you know, having honest conversations about salary and hourly rates and all of those things are conversations that can begin in college right now because it's, it's fascinating how we undervalue ourselves and how folks tend to try to diminish the value of creatives culturally. Oh, yeah, I can see that. I mean, even I am always so whenever I get a new job, it's always so awkward to talk about like salary 
and stuff like that because yeah we're we're not trained to really think of ourselves as you know as worthy of salaries <laughs> we, we tend to think of ourselves as you know i'm lucky to have a job so i shouldn't you know i shouldn't rock the boat i shouldn't push it or anything i'm just lucky that i'm get that i that somebody is paying me anything even if realistically they're not getting paid enough and so well, and people I, hold on to the term starving artist like a badge of honor yeah. i'm like no you can actually be a really fat and happy artist that that that, <laughs> is, that is possible the money is out there <laughs> but this doesn't come easy this comes with reading a lot of books and having a lot of people in my network who support the same philosophy and push me. And to be frank, it comes from hearing someone sit across from me at a table and say, well, my hourly rate is 350 and they don't even blink. And I think, who the heck does this guy think he is? And, <laughs> and then I realize, wait a minute, he's making money and I'm over here complaining. <laughs> so right. let me reevaluate my hourly rate. And then I tell all my, my friends in my network the same information. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's the kind of, st- again, that's kind of the stuff that's hard to learn in college until you really start dealing with professionals. Um, because yeah, it, it's, I mean, salary is such a weird thing. I mean, salary can differ so greatly from place to place, um, employer to employer. So mm-hmm. it's hard to kind of give people guidelines in, you know, at a, from an academic perspective that, you know, when you're in the workforce, you should look for X, Y, and Z. When the reality is that a lot of people are going to learn that stuff by working with people that are in the same field who have been through this before and have a good sense of what their time is worth. And they can hopefully give you help you to develop a sense of what your time is worth, which will hopefully be a lot of money because all of our time is worth money. Mm -hmm. There's also, you know, this academic perception that, you know, a liberal arts school is touchy feely and a bachelor of arts is the feel good degree. Um, (laughs) and, And that can't be further from the truth, especially, you know, if we recognize the situation we're in with COVID, we're all in quarantine and looking to the arts to be our outlet. You know, oh, you can tour museums for free and you can look at streaming videos and, you know, and all of these are created by people with creative backgrounds and creative degrees and liberal arts backgrounds are very influential in the art world and the entertainment world. And so a lot of it does start on the college campus of, you know, you are able to be a creative and touchy feely, and you're also able to demand a value for that experience and that 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 brain that you bring to the table. Yeah, and I think that's that's an important thing for liberal arts degree holders to know is that, like like we said, your time is worth money. It's you are of value. You are contributing stuff to the greater world. I think I just saw a tweet the other day, which was something like, um, you know, everybody's making fun of arts majors until they're all stuck inside watching Netflix or something along those lines, because suddenly it becomes much more apparent that, you know, yeah, we do need creative stuff because something can happen where suddenly the creative stuff is all that's helping us to stay sane, for example. So it's uh, uh, there definitely is a value to the liberal arts, kind of an economic value that's hard to fathom, but it's definitely there. It's also frustrating um, because we love what we do. I think we're called to what we do much more than perhaps, you know, an accountant or a, mm-hmm. um, you know, science person. I don't, I don't even know those kinds of jobs. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think I struggle because I love what I do so very much. I just want to help people. I'm, let me just do this for you. It's easy for me. I love to do it. You know, I mm-hmm. wanted to learn about this anyway. I'll just do it for you. But the frustrating part is that does not pay the electric bill. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I, I, that's one of the things that is kind of a problem for academics and for a lot of people. I mean, it's just that, yeah, when you're, when you're in something because you love it, it's much easier to not ask as much from other people. Mm -hmm. So it's easier to kind of be okay with a lower salary or something because, you know, you enjoy the job and, you know, as they always say, what's, what's the cliche, you know, if you love your job, you'll, you don't have to worry about getting paid or something. You'll never work work a day day in your life. life. That is true. That is true. There is, there is some truth to that, but still, you still need to get paid. (laughs) And and there's no shame in it either. I think, I think that's, you know, the, 
the bigger message. There's no shame in putting a value on what you bring to the table. Uh, and the sooner you can assess what that value is, the better. And I, I try to remind people younger than myself who are getting into or exploring videography or editing or doing makeup tutorials online or, or whatever it may be, photography. I try to remind them that if you don't get the money, you're not going to be doing this for very long. So you're not helping anybody. You're going to end up at a nine to five job because you can't make ends meet. So you might as well figure out what your value is so you can sustain this and contribute to your community in the way that you've been called to do and the way that we need you to. And I think that when you can push a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more, you know, you finally get it. You finally, you finally get comfortable and, and, so many people have said, I just asked for it and they gave it to me. And I said, well, yeah, that's kind of how it works. You're telling them what you're worth. And I've been in the situation where I ask someone, hey, I have a job. How much would you do this for? And they say, oh, 200 bucks. And I think, okay, A, either you don't know what you're doing or I'm really taking advantage of you and I have to mm -hmm. pay more than $200. So now I have to figure out, are you that inexperienced or are you just appreciative of a job and undervaluing yourself. Um, so it's, it's, it's a fascinating place to be, but certainly beginning in the, in the college community of talking about how do you monetize your art degree, your history degree, your French degree, <laughs> all mm -hmm. the things that people make fun of, how do you monetize it? Because that's how you're going to be able to sustain it. And it's okay to have a good life off of something you love. Yeah, definitely. And so we've been talking for actually about 45 minutes here. And so um, just as a way to wrap up, I'm wondering, do you have any last thoughts on, on, let me rephrase this. So just to, just to kind of summarize and just to wrap up here, uh, what is, what is the importance of the liberal arts in your mind? Liberal arts creates a diverse world that's beautiful and fully informed and spectacular. And it starts in college as you explore opportunities, things you love, things you don't love. And then you build your network of classmates, professors, advisors, mentors, and you start building who you are as an individual and identifying what the impact you'll have will be. And all of that starts truly on a college campus, in a college experience, in a college classroom. Um, you don't have to love it all, but you should at least try it out to figure out what you keep, what you throw away, who you have someone else, what you have someone else do <laughs> because you don't mm -hmm. want to do it because that's going to make you the most productive member of our society is when you can really thrive in the thing you're good at and then be surrounded by those who build you up and you build them up. Well said. All right. Well, thank you for joining me today, Jennifer. Thank you. It was wonderful. And thank you all for joining us today. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, Podbean, or whatever other app you prefer. We That way you won't miss any episodes, and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians and people in various liberal arts fields do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any of our other podcasts, send us a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at workinghistorians and on Twitter at workhistorians. For Jennifer Moxley, I'm Rob Denning. Take care of yourself and each other. <laughs>